What's up, heroes, and welcome to episode 83 of the Producer Life podcast. Today's guest is Chris Robley, a singer-songwriter and award-winning poet who also happens to be one of the creative geniuses behind the marketing team at CD Baby. For more than a decade, he's edited the DIY Musician blog and has been the co-host of the DIY Musician podcast, both of which are terrific resources I strongly encourage you to check out. As a musician, he creates orchestral indie pop and folk music which has been praised by the LA Times, the Boston Globe, NPR's Second Stage, and others. His award-winning poetry has been published in Poetry Magazine, Prairie Schooner, Poetry Northwest, and more. In this episode, we talk about staying creatively inspired, when it's time to take a break, the relationship between poetry and lyrics, social media planning, and he shares some creative ideas for pre-save campaigns. But first, cue the intro music. Hey, Chris, welcome to the Producer Life Podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. This this should be a terrific interview. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you both about your professional life as the senior content manager at CD Baby and also uh, your personal music career and some of the uh, gothic indie rock that you produce. Yeah, yeah, uh, I am too. And, and there is inevitably some overlap in those two topics, I'm sure. Yeah, it, it, you seem to... Um, I don't know. It seems like a, a best of bo- best of possible worlds when your uh, professional job kind of overlaps your uh, music career as well. And I, I imagine there's a lot of synergy between those two. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the one of the one being my own musical pursuits completely informs the <laughs> I, the more substantial W two income, I should say, the, the day job. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's both ways. You know, you you are the senior content manager. And as, as I was looking over what that means on, um, on your LinkedIn profile, you, you are responsible for articles, guides, videos, live streams, conferences. Um, you're kind of just, it strikes me that you're the creative mastermind at CD baby. <laughs> I mean, you're kind of the engine that puts out all the content. Is that, I'll take some sure credit for that, but yeah, we have a team and, and, um, I do work fairly closely with the VP of marketing, um, a guy named Kevin Bruner, who is a co-host of a podcast we have together, mm-hmm. uh, called the DIY musician podcast. And, and that actually, that sort of brand, which is a, you know, an offshoot brand of CD baby became the DIY musician blog, the podcast, the conference. So it has sort of spun into a whole, uh, you know, educational, uh, education for artists, but as well as a chance for artists to kind of come together themselves as a community and, and teach each other. So that's been really, yeah, a gratifying part of the, part of the job. I'll, I'll, and, and I'll pat myself on the back for a lot of it, but not all of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but, so the podcast came first. Is that you're up to 276 episodes now? It did. Yeah. I think we started in 2007 ish. Wow. Um, yeah, it's been around for a long time. And then, you know, the blog probably followed a year or two later, but um, we've been doing it a long time. And I'm sure, I'm sure in our, however long that is, um, I'm sure we've said a lot of things that <laughs> if I went back and listened, would sound quite idiotic. Well, you, you know, I think, uh, I think that's true for any sort of creative endeavor. You go back and you look at some of your early work and you go, man, <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> so where, where does this, is, so you're, developing content for CD Baby during the day job, then you've also got your your personal um, music brand as well. And obviously you're putting out content for that too. How, how do you keep that creative wellspring going? That That's a lot of stuff that you're constantly having to post about and, and write about and, and uh, talk about. Yeah. I mean, I guess the short answer is I don't keep it all going. And um, I, I struggle with that or at least I did struggle with that. You know, there's, I think artists have a sense that they need to constantly be producing and not just producing music, but, you know, producing content, producing, booking shows, just, just any way you can be productive. I think we just feel this pressure to always be doing it. Um, and I was definitely that way in my musical life up until about 20, 2011, um, which is when I actually moved, uh, CD Baby is based in Portland, Oregon, and I lived there for quite a long time. Um, and then in 2011, I moved 
back closer to where my parents were on the East Coast and um, I had a, had a baby and, you know, becoming a father, I sort of went into uh, a musically dormant mode um, for a few mm-hmm. reasons. One, I'm in a new place. My band isn't near me. I'm a dad, so I don't have really time to um, I certainly didn't have time to be going out to clubs and finding musicians to collaborate with and stuff, but I really wasn't even finding the time to, to practice and book many gigs of my own because, you know, <laughs> parenting takes, takes, um, it's a full-time job, a right full-time there. job. Yeah. And I was kind of, you know, slowly getting adjusted to that thing. Oh, this will be easy. And I'm like, Holy shit. That's, <laughs> uh, you know, a thousand people told me it'll change my life and be tons of work, but, um, they were proven correct. And so I, I put music on the back burner for about four years and played probably just a handful of shows a year, just to sort of like remember how to do it. Uh And, and I switched to, I kept artistic pursuits going. I sort of switched to poetry. Um, it's way more conducive to, um, you know, a domestic life and, um, it's, it's a lot easier to carry a piece of paper or a laptop around than it is to move a drum set and and all that. So, yeah, So yeah, anyways, I switched gears to poetry for a little while and then, you know, at some point sort of had space in my life opening up again from music stuff as well as the passion returned. But anyways, that's my long-winded way of saying like, I allow myself breaks and that was the most dramatic one. It lasted years. But, um, you know, now that I'm sort of back fully into music, it, it still will be like burn the candle at both ends for three weeks and then just crash and take two or three weeks off and let myself just remember what life is like away from Instagram and my computer and whatever. And, you know, um, I, I, I guess like I sort of wish I could have more regimented, like, t- you know, some people are very good at time blocking and scheduling their entire life. I've never been really good at that. And whenever I try it, it, it seems to get scattered. Um, yeah. but, but anyways, this is my own sort of, more vague version of time blocking. I, I just leave room for not being productive. Yeah. Well, it's kind of time blocking on a macro scale. It, 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 it your, your four year break there with sort of, you know, really actively pursuing the music the music portion strikes me as almost like an academic sabbatical where you take a year off every, what is it? Seven years or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so did you, when, when you started coming back, did you find that your, 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 your musical wellspring was refreshed at that point was, would you recommend other musicians maybe do that? Take, well, take a year or two off. And I definitely do. And I would, you know, it's the type of thing I can say like later feeling like now I have some hard earned wisdom or something. <laughs> I, um, if I could recommend people do it when they're feeling a certain way, that's when I would recommend it. And it's when a musician is feeling not just burned out and tired, but when they're getting to that place where they feel resentful and, um, just, you know, I, I, I think most musicians can relate to this. Like you get to a place where you're feeling kind of bitter. You look around other musicians that maybe you, you think aren't as good or haven't worked as long or are going further in certain way. Anyways, you know, bad feelings build up. And that just coincided with the time when my life changed drastically in many ways. I moved, I had a kid and in my downtime, I also had this just beautiful experience of, of becoming a father, starting a new relationship, or I'd say sort of like deepening a new relationship, finding out how to co-parent all these things that like as, as deeply as I connect with music and as important and essential as music is to me, it's not the most important thing when those other things take shape in your life. And you're very much responsible for, (laughs) you know, the, the sink or swim aspect of family domestic life. So, So I just had this like um, really drastic shifting of my perspective. And again, this happened probably over years. So now I can say it as this thing that was easy. It, it wasn't, and it wasn't quick. But when I came back to music, I don't think I've felt really any of that. I, I still feel sometimes like tired of how sometimes difficult things feel, but it I shed the comparison component of it. And I'm way less bitter and, and, um, uh, and jealous or what, you know, those sorts of <laughs> lower mm-hmm. things. Cause I'm like, Holy shit, my life is fantastic. Like I have this beautiful girl, you know, like my family, like it just all the good stuff in life. I'm way more appreciative of. And so I think that has crowded out 
in a very good way, any, any of that negative stuff, I just don't have time and space for it. And if it starts to like nudge itself into my psychic space, like something very quickly will like boot it back out. Cause I got to get my kid to school or whatever. So <laughs> anyways, it, it, if people are feeling bitter, that's the time to take a break. Okay. That, uh, that sounds like good advice. And you did, so you, you kind of pursued a, a related field. You, you, is that when you started writing poetry or you've, you've done it before? I had written like <laughs> in college, I, I was really interested in poetry and probably wrote a bunch of really terrible pretentious things. Um, <laughs> and then w around the time I was kind of burning out on music, I regained a passion for, for reading poetry, um, and writing a little bit. And, um, yeah, it was, it was odd. The, the energy that I'd already, oh, that I'd say the energy and curiosity that I had always brought to music as that was dying out, I was able to slip it into this related creative medium and, um, had some like pretty quick success in that field, which was weird because with music, um, you know, I've had, I've had successes, but, but they weren't quick. And with poetry, I, I very quickly got a lot of things published in, mm -hmm. you know, pretty prestigious journals and stuff, uh, poetry magazine and places like that. And it was, it was odd. It was like, um, Oh wow. I, I think I'm probably good at this because, because I'm inspired enough to, to, to do it, I guess. Um, but also getting acceptance in that, in that world fairly quickly. And it was weird. And, and I think another thing that when I returned to music, um, helps me have a, a more healthy perspective on it. I realized that like success in poetry is just so relative. It's like the best poets in the world, or, you know, the sort of the most quote famous poets in the world are still like completely unknown to most of the world. If they have a best selling book. It might sell, I don't know, 20 or 30 or 40,000 copies. And, you know, compared to what it's, you know, what's on the New York times bestseller list, that's nothing. So I was like, Oh, that's cool that there's this whole world that of course has its own hierarchies and ambitions and stuff, but is very free of, um, a lot of the things that I think musicians are, hung up by the sort of obsession with youth and obsession with, um, massive amounts of attention. And I was like, Oh, poetry, just by the nature of what the art is, that stuff is sort of impossible. And it gave me a little bit of a, I don't know, a good perspective shift. I think. Hmm. How, how does poetry relate to or inform your songwriting now? Um, I don't really know. I'm, I'm absolutely sure that it does. I feel like once I, um, had that poetry phase, I think I became a way better lyricist, but I do think of them as very different art forms. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure how to summarize that, but I will say that I wrote so many poems in that poetry phase that I have gone back through them. And even though most of what's written on the page wouldn't work as a song lyric, there'll be phrases or, you know, a few lines or even just an image or an idea that I have kind of stolen or cannibalized into a, a song lyric later. So, okay. um, yeah, it's, it's like a good well to draw on, I guess. What's, so what, what would you say are the major differences between writing a lyric and writing a poem? Um, well, the tone, like the, the tone and musicality of a poem or, or you know, not, not to say poems have to sound musical, but it has to be entirely contained within how you are playing with or defying expectations uh, of language. You know, it, it exists separate from the music. And I think music is such a obviously like powerful and information rich emotion rich medium that when you like put that underneath lyrics, you can get away with a lot more, I think, in, in uh, lyric writing. And that might sound disparaging or like, you know, like like <laughs> ly lyrics can be stupid. Like, and and I don't mean that in a yeah. bad way. That, that I think there's a, a beauty in very simple, even incoherent, <laughs> dumb word utterances with lyrics. And it doesn't matter, like, because it's coasting on this just uh, bed of music and how they speak to each other. Anyways, poetry... Uh, at least my conception of poetry uh, didn't have that it has to sort of exist in this other place. Yeah. 
I, I think some of the best songs, I mean, it can be carried by a beautiful instrumental, but it can also be carried by a really clever, clever verse or chorus, or, you know, some of the most timeless songs are ones that tell a story and, and take the listener on a journey. And, um, so it seems like there's a great deal of poetry that goes into good lyrical writing, but I'm, I'm not a poet. So (laughs) that's why I was curious about your perspective. Well, one thing that just occurred to me is I think what I appreciate the most about poetry isn't its, um, you know, lyricalness or lack thereof. It's not necessarily about the uh, formal structure of the words, uh, um, although that stuff is can be very cool. I think for me, what 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 I uh, the definition of good poetry to me is like this a concept of like rhyming or clashing ideas and that um, I would say this, that like. Um, Keats had this, you know, very famous uh, phrase that he used called negative capability when talking about Shakespeare's writing. And it was this idea that Shakespeare was such a genius because he could put thoughts together in a way where um, they didn't have to like strain too much to make meaning. They just had a, uh, a kind of beautiful sense of their own. And so there wasn't just a a straining after having to know or have to pin down the exact literal meaning of something. So it's this sort of free space of ideas that sometimes don't even need to, to cohere. And I find that the most powerful thing about poetry. And to the extent that that sort of thing can enter lyrics, um, that's where I'm always sold. Um, like, um, I don't know how many of your listeners will be familiar with Paul Simon's stuff, but he's got this song called train in the distance, which the verses are very narrative and they talk about, um, you know, a husband and a wife having a kid getting divorced. It's very like a literal story. And then the chorus just switches to this thing that's seemingly completely disconnected. And he says, um, everybody loves the sound of a train in the distance. Everybody thinks it's true. And the, that that sort of juxtaposition of the the narrative with this thing that feels wise, even though it, you don't know exactly why, just <laughs> makes me I, I cry every time I hear that song. It like has so much power. So, yeah, that sort of poetic energy, if it can live in a lyric, is is really what makes music for me. Yeah, and and you're also a multi instrumentalist. You you play a lot of the sounds that you're recording when you're when you're doing your gothic indie pop is that I know you'd have a jazz guitar background. Do you also play other instruments as well? I do. Um, I play keyboards and, um, you know, bass. I can play sort of rudimentary mandolin. Ukulele. Hmm. If, if it's got strings, uh, you know, I can, I can play it usually well enough to make a part that'll work in a recording. I wouldn't necessarily step on stage and at a jam session with those instruments, but, um, <laughs> And, you know, I can do some sequencing and programming of drum stuff and, and MIDI type stuff. I am not a good actual drummer. So um, if there are drum sets on my recordings, they're usually actual drummers or, or you know, or drum machines. Okay. Uh, harmonicas? Or the, is that you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I play harmonica too. <laughs> not very well, but, you know, good enough for folk music. Yeah, yeah. I was listening to something and I was like, oh, it's kind of blues traveler-esque. So... So are you are you doing a lot of the producing technical aspects? Are you using a DAW and uh, going in there and adding? Your, your vocals are really, really gorgeous, um, the way you've got them processed. Are you doing that, or are you hiring a producer to do that? Well, so what I it, – it depends. If they're older recordings of mine, a lot of those were actually probably done in a studio. Um, and I would sometimes start with a, a – uh, you know, kind of a drums, bass, guitar tracking, basic tracks live. And then I would do much or, mo- you know, all of the overdubbing stuff more lately. And especially through like pandemic times, um, I have been, I've got Luna, the uh, universal audio uh, workstation. I've been using that to do a lot of more bedroomy or, you know, maybe slightly more electronic tinged uh, stuff myself. And then the point at which I stop is when it needs to be mixed. I'm, I'm, I get really intimidated by that process. So I feel confident enough throwing sounds, you know, (laughs) against the wall. And, and I know to some degree mixing a good mixing engineer can even save the fact that I don't know what I'm doing as an engineer, (laughs) but, but then I stop and I, I have, um, three or four friends that are mixing engineers that all send stuff to, and they, they do the rest. I mean, with my input, but. Okay. Awesome. 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 
so circling back a little bit in you've got at CD baby, you've got the podcast, you've got a blog, you're publishing or your team is publishing fairly regularly to social media. Can, can you talk about sort of the content strategy? I mean, do you guys, when you're, when you're planning for a big organization like CD baby, are you guys planning days, weeks out in advance? Do you have a calendar? Do you, is there a thought process there? Or is it just kind of a brainstorming session? Oh, what are we going to say today? Oh, that's a good question. And it's something we're sort of revamping now. Um, for a really long time, CD baby was, you know, it was a small company and, um, we had a, you know, it's at one point we had no marketing team. And then, um, hmm. I worked in basically customer service and, and worked my way into a, a job that was called editor, which at the time was uh, a team of people who were listening to everything that came in, which was a lot of music. Um, mm-hmm. and then that team sort of just def- by default became the marketing team. And so a lot of, um, of music business stuff i kind of learned on the go uh, throughout my customer service phase um which excuse me uh, isn't really customer service more artist services our clients that are using our services and have a lot of questions about the music business how to book gigs the legality of you know samples and all this stuff so i learned a lot of that (laughs) on the go and then uh kind of became the one of three on the marketing team and kind of had to learn marketing as i went as well um, and for a really long time, what content was for CD baby was literally whatever I wanted it to be. Like Kevin and I were the ones generating, uh, it's probably safe to say we're generating a hundred percent of the content. I was probably generating about 80% of it myself. And so it would be very scattershot. Like, Oh, I woke up this morning and had a question about doing something on Facebook. I'll write an article about that and I'll literally do it for my own music and take screenshots and, so that was a place and a time in my life when my own musical uh, pursuits were, you know, very much overlapping with what uh, CD Baby was putting out. And it was just driven by my own curiosity a lot of times or mm-hmm. by the questions, sort of the most common questions we were getting uh, from our the artists that are using CD Baby. Um, and, you know, we must have gone for about 12 years like that. Um, and now, the, I mean, the, the the world has changed a lot. CD Baby has um, more competitors. There's more just free information out there. You know, you can find anything on YouTube. Uh, so we're shifting our strategy a bit. It's becoming more thought out in advance. It's becoming a little bit less focused on just output. You know, I used to write five articles a week and now maybe we'll do like one every other week and that's fine. Um, some of the, uh, uh, I'd say that's the case for the blog stuff we do. Certainly our conferences are planned out, you know, six to 12 months in advance. Uh, for social, we have some things that are, you know, on the, on the, uh, on the conveyor belt for, for weeks. And then other things will just be like, Oh, that's a funny meme. What can we do with that? And then like later <laughs> that day, it'll be up on Instagram. So we try to have a little bit of a balance between thinking things out you know, three months down the the road and then also having some space to just respond to something in the moment. Um, but I will say like, um, you know, uh, CD baby does that. Well, it has been a, um, personal like learning curve or, or, or challenge for me to get more organized in that way, because for so long it was like, like I said, just CD baby content was sort of synonymous with whatever I wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. And I, I trusted myself to be productive and to be constantly putting stuff out, but I didn't need to lean on anyone else. There almost didn't need to be a schedule because it was all on my shoulders. And now CD baby has grown so dramatically. Um, you know, we started with a marketing department of three and I think we have, I don't know, 19, people on our team now, something like that, just in marketing. So, you know, we have to keep each other accountable to (laughs) timelines a little bit more. So when I said I wasn't good at time blocking in my own life, I'm (laughs) struggling to get good at that quickly for work. Yeah. And and I imagine there's a great deal of collaboration that has to happen because you may have a great idea for today's content, but three other people may have a similar idea and trying to space all that out and that's got to be a challenge. 
Yeah. And to prioritize it too, because like, just because, you know, let's say four of us have an idea, have different ideas, like you're saying, maybe, um, maybe three of them are really good and worth doing, but we only have so much bandwidth so we can tackle one, uh, you know, this month or whatever, or this week. So like, even just to have a, a lot more consideration for what is the top priority is, is something that's in some way it's common sense, but also is sort of a new process for me since it's collaborative by its very nature. Um, before whatever I prioritized is what captured my interest the most that day. Talking about marketing and kind of bringing this to a personal level to to my listeners, one of the tools that CD Baby brings to the table is Show.co. And I think you've been pretty involved with sort of uh, marketing and outreach for that brand. Yeah. Can you talk about a little bit about Show.co and what that does for a musician? Yeah. So Show.co is a suite of music marketing tools that we actually acquired maybe five years ago at this point. Um, and it was, um, basically this, this tool that I think that the the thing that was getting the most headlines at the time was the Spotify pre-save. And so it, it, that is one of the many things that you can do with it. You run a Spotify pre-save and all these labels were using it. Um, Maroon five, Tovlo, not that they're labels, but you know, artists on labels, Mm -hmm. uh, of that stature. And then the real compelling, story was Oasis, the uh, Brit rock band. They had kind of been dormant for quite a long time, um, but they knew they had a huge audience out there and they wanted to activate that audience to like get onto Spotify, start following and listening to their music there. Um, and so they started using show.co or, or their label did, and they had something like 90, 92 or 93% conversion rates, which wow. is, you know, insane Be- beyond a miracle in the marketing world. Yeah. And so, you know, they're, they're a famous artist. So in some way they're always going to be an outlier, but there is something about show.co as a tool that makes it a very, um, intuitive and, and sort of, uh, intuitive for the artist to create the campaigns. Um, it forces the artist to be succinct in, um, the way they phrase their, their offer. And then also unlike a lot of smart link tools that, that do, um, pre-saves where you know like the your fan clicks pre-save woohoo now they they get the pre-save on 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 friday or whatever or get this song on friday there's not a whole lot of um reason for a fan to do that there's no shortage of you know uh ways for them to remember you have music out and so really that's a, a pre-save is something where they're entirely doing you a favor for not much benefit. And most other pre-save tools kind of end there. Uh, you ask them to do you a favor, they do you a favor, end of story. But with show.co, the pre-save is just this kind of intermediary gateway. And beyond that is something else that you incentivize your fans to, to do. It could be a contest. It could be um, unlocking an unlisted YouTube video, something like that, where maybe you, you send them to a private SoundCloud thing that has the demo of the song you're about to release, just anything like that, where it's more about the experience. Um, and so I really appreciate that about show.co as well. Um, I try to wrap this all up by saying it can do a lot more than Spotify pre-saves. Um, we make it available to CD baby account holders for free. Um, if people go right to show.co to use it and, you know, labels and stuff, they have to pay. But if you create a CD Baby account and you don't even have to end up using us for distribution, hint, hint, uh, you can <laughs> you can create a CD Baby account and then there'll be a link in there to initiate a free show.co uh, account. Yeah. And I've uh, I've been a CD Baby artist for a while and I've used show.co for pre-saves and it's it is a very simple interface and worked worked really well. What what are some of the can you give us a couple of examples Um that you've seen work well for sort of giveaways that people have run in exchange for pre-saves. What, what um, you mentioned like demos, what can you come up? Can you think of any specific examples that people have used or maybe you've yeah. used that have worked well? Well, so uh, yeah, I can think of a few examples. Um, I'll start with Oasis. What they were doing, it wasn't for a pre-save because they weren't making new music. It was to get people to follow them on Spotify and, or, you know, to just go and consume music there and they were doing a box set giveaway um, and they were probably doing more than one. You know, it might've been, I can't remember exactly. It might've been like, you know, we've got 20 box sets and we'll autograph them, something like that. That was a great giveaway. 
for uh, my friend Kevin, who co-hosts the podcast with me that we have. Um, he has one of my favorite examples. Um, his band, um, they're called Small Town Poets. And at some point in the late 90s, they were touring and they had this medley of, um, I think they were uh, songs from the 70s that they were playing. And something about them performing at this one place got them kicked off stage. Like the lights went out, the man, the you know club booker or manager or whatever came up and like literally like almost had the um, the hook or something. It just quickly got them off stage. He was pissed. So he had a recording of that that he put on SoundCloud as you know a, a unlisted or private thing. And his headline was "Hear the song that got us kicked off stage." And I can't remember what, you know, what his response was, but it's something he's been able to use, not just for small time poets fans to engage with, because that's a headline that he puts it out every once in a while on Twitter or, you know, wherever. And just random people that come across it are like, ah, I wonder what was so awful or offensive or, or whatever, you know? (laughs) And so then you go and you hear the song and I think he has a description, uh, the SoundCloud description says more of the story and the details, but I always liked that one. And then um, the the campaign that I did for my own music that worked the best was um, there was this song I was putting out where the, the music video, which, oh my God, I, the, this is terrible to admit, but I never finished editing it. But I had edited um, a like a teaser reel for it. And the video mm-hmm. consists of me just getting slapped a bunch. Like, you know, I don't know if people know that LCD sound system video or... That was kind of the inspiration for it, but you know, we took it in a slightly different direction. But I, uh, so my headline was like, see the, what did I say? You know, pre-save and see me get slapped 20 times or something like that. <laughs> and so it unlocked the, the, the teaser video and, you know, some two years later, eventually I'll get around to actually putting the video out. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> the expression these days is this song slaps. Yeah. Means- right. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Okay. Interesting. All right. Great. Um, now show.code just, it, it does a lot more. It, it also helps you run ad campaigns on websites and several other things, right? Yeah. So the, on the free side of things, um, there's a campaign type called, um, social unlock. And that's really anything where you want your, your follower, your fan to take an action and then they unlock some content. And so the, the, the action they could take to unlock the content or the contest could be uh, a Spotify pre-save, Spotify save, a Spotify follow, uh, something called stream to unlock where once they listen to at least 30 seconds of your song on Spotify, that qualifies uh, them to, to go on to the content um, that you're offering. There's um, a few other things in that category, but then there's also a YouTube uh, premiere campaign type, which is basically just, it's a fancy page to embed a video, but it looks really nice. It gets rid of the YouTube clutter. You know, there's no other recommended videos. And then you can put up these things called conversion cards as the video plays that can, you know, boost your following on Twitter, Facebook, things like that. You think it can link to a a web store to Spotify, whatever. Uh, There's a similar kind of page for SoundCloud players where it gets rid of the clutter. Um, Hmm. And then, yeah, on the on the paid side of it, there's a tool called Ad Builder, which lets you run um, ads for music on premier music websites, uh, Pitchfork, Billboard, uh, MTV.com, a bunch of places like that. And um, there's a really cool ad type called, what are we calling them? Interactive ads. And basically, you just put in a YouTube uh, link or a Spotify link to a song. And the ad itself is the playable media. So a lot of times the way that they appear, let's say you're on Pitchfork and that ad comes up, it actually looks uh, to some degree like it's um, editorial content because it's a video. So there's a sort of sneaky way of you kind of like making it look like your music's on Pitchfork uh, from an editorial standpoint. If someone clicks the video, it's a monetized play, first of all. So um you're probably not going to make back what you're spending. Um, but at least it's getting you some return. And then if they enjoy what they are watching right there on the site, which is cool, they don't have to leave the site to go and, you know, check out the ad. But if they do want to, you can still put a call to action there that can link them to wherever you want web store, your own website, Spotify, whatever. Okay. Now in that case, you're simply using that ad for anybody that's on Pitchfork, which which certainly 
covers a diverse amount of music, there isn't any way to further target it like Facebook ads. Like I am looking specifically for, you know, 25 to 35 year olds in a particular area. It's just pitchfork listeners that are going to no, see it. Th- there are more specific ways you can target. So you can do, um, you know, you can narrow it, but not nearly to the same degree as, as Facebook, but you've got geographic options. You have, um, uh, this is sort of three different easy bucket kind of tiers of websites. So one is like the premier music sites. And, uh, you know, obviously for that, you're going to pay more for less impressions. And that would be the pitchforks of the world. Um, and then they're, uh, sort of designated by genres. So you can target blogs uh, of various, what you call the tiers, various uh, notoriety or whatever, uh, various okay. levels of influence based on genre and and a bunch of other stuff. But yeah, it's it's not as um, the targeting features aren't as robust as Facebook. But to some degree, that's by design because we wanted to be this to be a thing that's reaching, um, you know, kind of an easy button where you know you're at least reaching music fans and you don't have to do a bunch of work to segment them out that way. Yeah. Facebook ad manager is kind of intimidating the first time you go in there. Yeah. (laughs) So, and, or, or, or the thousandth time you've been in there. They keep moving things around. Very true. Very, very true. You mentioned the CD baby conference and I've, I've been one of those, but you've been kind of integral in planning. How many have you had now? Oh, I'm forgetting because of the, because of the pandemic, but let's see, we were in Chicago twice, Nashville twice and Austin. So we had five, Five in person, and then the, and then COVID hit. Uh, we are doing one this summer that's virtual. It's going to be kind of a, very, a sort of a stripped down thing, uh, but still three days. Uh, we'll try to make it very high impact, but we know people have screen burnout for sure. So, um, <laughs> um, now, now that's I think I saw an ad for that. That's free, isn't it? It is free. Yep. Um, and if you go to Oh crap, what's her website? DIYMusicianConference.com or DIYMusicianCon.com. Um, there should be information about it. Just have to RSVP, but it's totally free. Yeah, I, I will make sure I include a link in the show notes. Um, I, As I mentioned, I went to the one in Nashville in 2018 and I took notes. I, I have a 30-page hyperlinked PDF of uh, carefully, meticulously cleaned up and organized notes from all the sessions I attended. And, oh my God. Uh, I, you yeah, did your I, own? Wow. I did. I, and then I wound up using that as a giveaway for email addresses. So um, <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, yeah, that, thank you. Yeah. Did you, yeah, did you say you were a speaker there as well? No, no, no. But I would love to one day. That would be, that would be awesome. Um, I know we are looking, uh, uh, this might be something that's saved for the in-person event in 2022, but I know we're going to do a podcast, um, like a podcast room, a podcast discussion, something like that. So Okay. All right. Well, keep me, keep me in mind. That'd be awesome. Um, what, what goes into, you know, I would think my listeners are primarily producers and DJs, but planning any sort of a major event, there's, there's, I think probably some commonality. What goes into planning a major conference like this? What are some of the considerations and what are you guys looking at and how far out do you start planning? Yeah. So <laughs> thankfully, uh, a couple other people on our team do the, the legwork that is based around like, um, reserving the site and really worrying about hotel blocks because that, that is one concern, um, that, that, um, you know, most conference centers are attached to hotels and in order for you to sell this hotel on, on your event and that it's worth it, they want to know a certain amount of your attendees are going to stay at that hotel. So, you know, the negotiations between how much rooms cost, um, how many people from your conference you can reasonably expect to reserve those rooms is pretty important. And then one of the weird things we run into is um, we're not a doctor's conference or a lawyer's conference. We're a DIY musician conference. So by the nature of it, these aren't people who have a ton of uh, extra income. So we have to be extra... um, you know, jump through some hoops to make sure rooms can stay affordable. And it's not like, Hey, come to this cheap conference because we make it affordable. You know, I forget what tickets are. They might be 50 bucks early bird and maybe 150 at the, at the most. So the, the, even the tickets for three days of events are very affordable, but the rooms might otherwise be $400 unless we did a bunch of work to, to make them affordable. So that's, that's the first thing. Um, and then, um, once you got the place, it's just a matter of, 
balancing the content, making sure it's all, you know, good, actionable stuff. Um, we have to do a little bit of, um, making sure speakers aren't totally there for the hard sell on their own courses because, uh, you know, there's a lot of music industry, music marketing experts out there. And when they speak, they, they want you to sign up for their thing. And that's fine to an extent, but we have to try to make sure it's like, Hey, keep that to the last like minute and a half. Um, and just make the session something that could live on its own. And if someone never pursued you onto your course, you're selling, they, they can walk away getting some value from this. So that's another thing. And then, you know, trying to have a diverse representation in terms of gender and racial, uh, diversity, um, trying to have some international presence as well, which, um, thankful, thankfully, uh, CD baby has a a pretty huge international team at this point with offices all over the world. So we can kind of lean on some of those folks to, to find good speakers and people who are willing to travel, uh, for that stuff too. So, and then we, uh, the last thing I'll say is you got to have good parties. So, uh, (laughs) you need some offsite places where, you know, beer is cheap and there's good music. Yeah, that that certainly is a is a big draw. Do you have any favorite memories from any of the recent conferences? I do and it's maybe this is a weird memory cuz it doesn't uh it didn't happen at the conference, but um I met some people who were attending um I think it was the Saturday of a yeah, of of a 3-day conference. So it was the sort of the middle day met all these people who were already friends and they had decided that they were going to form this little group and then go to a bunch of different sessions and all take notes, come back at the end of the night and like share what they'd all learned. So they could kind of feel like they attended all the sessions. Um, and I forget when I, you know, it might've been at sort of at the end of the educational part of the day around five. And they told me about this meeting and they invited me. And so I went maybe like eight o'clock at night and I ended up staying there until like 2 a.m., it was just this great small group of people that were just so kind, super motivated. Um, they had good stuff to share from the sessions, but they also just had good stuff, good tips from their own lives and what they were doing with their music. And I loved that. And it was like that memory is like what that conference is about for me. It's like we want to facilitate a meeting of artists who can do that, not just that weekend, but stay in touch and help each other for the rest of their lives. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm still following a bunch of people and interact with people from 2018 um, on social media that you know made made some re- remarkable friends while I was there, and it was a really really cool event. I'm I'm looking forward to coming back another time. Nice, um, that's awesome. So yeah, I'm definitely going to check out the the uh, online one this year. Uh, I, I don't think I'm quite zoomed out yet. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's amazing. How did you manage I, well, that? <laughs> I, well, you know, being a music producer, I stare at a screen all day anyway. So last year wasn't that different. <laughs> right. <laughs> so sad, but true. <laughs> Tell me, so CD Baby is, I think you guys have been around longer than anybody else. You guys kind of started the industry of of do-it-yourself releases. And you, I think you've been around for 20, 25 years now. Is that right? It's since 98. So what would that be? 23 years 30, at this point? 23 years. Yeah. All right. Right. So, so 25 will have to be a big conference. Oh, um, yeah. What would you say when, when somebody is looking at different distributors, um, what is what is the sales pitch that you give for CD Baby? What Why should people come to CD Baby as opposed to any of the dozens of other ones that are out there? <laughs> well, I actually listened to your interview with Pony uh, a, a few episodes ago, and I, oh, liked, okay. I liked his description of uh, when he's, he was comparing CD Baby and Sounddrop. And how he describes Soundrop as the the casual taco cart or something like that. Um, and you're the you're the steak restaurant. And we're the steakhouse, and so you know you will pay a little bit more. And um, the good news is that's a one time fee, and then we will never again ask you for an annual fee. So your music is guaranteed to stay up for as long as there is an internet. You know until the sun expands or the heat death of the universe or whatever your, your music <laughs> will be out there. Um, because a, a lot of musicians, um, I think they fall for the cheap, um, the cheap option, the cheap competitors, um, mm-hmm. thinking that the lower price is the deciding factor. And then a couple things will happen. Like one, they can get in there and realize that it's actually, that's not really a fair assessment of what it costs because if they really want everything that CD baby would have just gave them 
all for that one-time fee. Uh, with a competitor, they're they're getting nickel and dime for everything, and they're paying just as much or more. With the added stress of the annual fees or the renewal fees, or some companies will do like per delivery fees, like oh hey, we partnered with this new thing called Triller or TikTok or whatever. You want your music there, you got to pay extra. So our pricing model gets rid of all that worry. One time fee, and then beyond that, we only ever make money when you do. And the fact that we also take a cut of uh, kind of back end revenue, I think a lot of times is kind of used against us. But I actually think it's one of our biggest. Uh, I don't know, selling points the right word, but it basically means our incentives are completely aligned. When you are successful, we're successful. And that means we want to get your music into every opportunity, be fully monetized on every platform, not just now, but anytime there's a new platform, we want it there for free. And it's not just about like delivering your latest single to Spotify in time for this, you know, one drop that everyone's going to forget about a week later because you're going to be on to the next track or whatever. Uh, our catalog goes back 23 years and all of it matters to us. We're trying to fully monetize the 23-year-old releases the same way we are something that came out last year. So that's another thing. Um, we've had a, a long history of being just, you know, reachable, artist-friendly, happy to meet up, have conversations about other aspects of, of music making that aren't, you know, specifically about distribution, but, um, Kevin and I go live on, uh, Facebook and Instagram a lot for Q and A's. So we just want to be accessible and, and, you know, make sure that people know that the, the folks that work at CD baby are, uh, lots of them are musicians. Almost all of them are artists in some way. So they all kind of get the, get the life and the, what it's like to put yourself out there and, just treat the treat the music that people are putting out like it matters because it does. And we know that for the artists, it's, you know, something that matters a great deal. So, yeah, that'd be, um, that wasn't a succinct uh, elevator pitch, but <laughs> that's my <laughs> no, case for CD was, Baby. That was great. And I, I have had a fantastic experience with CD Baby thus far. And I think I've been releasing music with you guys since, I don't know, four or five years now. Oh, Six cool. Years maybe. Nice. Thanks. So I've, I've enjoyed it. I, I will say, and, and particularly since I've got um, an audience full of producers and DJs, I think the one distribution platform that um, I, I feel like you guys are missing, and I'm curious why uh, it hasn't been added, is Beatport, which is huge for <laughs> DJs yeah. and producers. So um, I'll preempt this by saying I don't know all the technical reasons. Um, this is a decision that... Like literally every time I go live on Facebook, someone pops up and says, hey, when are you going to partner with Bport? And um, as far as I understand it, when we've talked to our like digital operations team, which is the team that's responsible for uh, gathering up the files and the metadata, checking and inspecting it all, and then sending it on to the DSPs and uh, you know music platforms, we've had this issue where we want to work with companies that'll take our whole catalog and that is just such a niche one that there ends up being, and again, sorry for the sort of vague, ignorant answer, but I'm not sure what the snags are, but there's some reason why, I don't know if it's that there's sort of we leveraging better deals uh, for our artists or something like that, but there's, there's a reason why the people who negotiate that stuff want to work with companies who will take everything. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and so I don't know what the, the state of that is for future discussions. It comes up, so often that I know it's, we're constantly vetting that stance, if you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. um, it's always discussed in our prioritization meetings quarterly, like, so Beatport still really important. So, (laughs) Hey, can I turn this into an interview of you and ask, uh, ask you, why is it so important? What, Um, what does your community get from that platform? They can't get elsewhere. So for for electronic musicians and DJs and producers, Beatport and charting on Beatport is kind of uh, almost a holy grail. You know, if you can get a release that charts on Beatport, that's a major feather in your cap. And that's where a lot of DJs go to download the hottest, latest tracks. And so if you're not on Beatport, it's, you know, that's that's one of the go to places that people go for music that's that's played out in clubs and festivals. Mm-hmm. Um, so. It, it's just a major point of visibility for electronic musicians. Right. 
Yeah, that's okay. That 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 confirms my suspicion. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and, and I could also understand if it if it is as you were kind of describing, if it is an issue of not accepting the whole catalog. You know, CD Baby has twenty plus years of a very diverse group of do it yourself musicians. I can kind of understand if that's the hurdle. You know, Beatport not wanting to flood their directories and their databases with, you know, folk music and, and, and all, you know, country music and a lot of other things, which I guess might make clutter the searches perhaps um, for people looking for specific types of music that, but I'm, I'm just speculating. Yeah. And it would be, you know, we have something like 700 genres in our catalog. So it'd be literally <laughs> stuff from all over the world. It, I think your average yeah. Beatport uh, user would be like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where's, where's this coming from? I was looking for <laughs> tribal techno, you know, and now I got this crazy stuff. Um, so yeah. All right. Well, it'd be interesting to see what happens. Um, so where, what would you say is two-part question. What would you say is next for CD Baby? What are you guys working on moving forward and and what's next for your your personal music career? Yeah. So um, with CD Baby, um, the boring answer is we're going through a big database migration right now. Um, (laughs) And um, which is boring for all the listeners, but super exciting for us because we have 23 years of accounting, you know, super detailed accounting uh, information, metadata about the music. Um, and we're just upgrading um, our system so we can do more with it. And, and once that is done, you know, it's on our list to sort of find, finalize the work on things like uh, revenue splits, more robust credits. Uh, you know, we can support different things, producer, featured artist to some degree, but I know there's a lot more that... Um, you know, we can do in that area. So those are sort of the little technical things that we'd like to, to, to tackle first. And then big picture, we haven't rolled this out really officially. So, um, hopefully I'm not spilling the beans on anything, but we have always had a creator services team, uh, kind of an A&R label services, uh, department for, mm-hmm. well, I don't know about always, but you know, for about 11 or 12 years, probably. And they handle things like um, editorial pitching and playlist pitching with DSPs, um, even things like, um, you know, more A&R type stuff like advances and and um, helping with um, more robust physical distribution rollouts and fulfillment, that kind of stuff, um, down to like just getting a billboard in Times Square, like all these kinds of things that that big artists do. We have done, but we've been a little bit quiet about it except to that kind of tier of artist and manager because we can't sort of responsibly promise that to our whole user base because we have a million artists. And, but what we're trying to do is find the language to basically say, we have these things, we've always have them. We do it really well. And here's that, here's why that's good for you. The average CD baby artist, even if you don't qualify for them yet. And the answer is because you don't need a label. We, we don't want anyone to ever need a label. And if they work, you know, hard enough and their music's good enough and they grow their career to a place where they reasonably start looking around and say, you know, what are my options? We want one of their options and we want the one they pick to be like, Hey, I'm going to stay here. Cause CD baby now can like, I can kind of unlock all these things that I would ever want to leave for. So, and when they do that, they, obviously retain their rights. They continue to earn the lion's share of whatever their music is generating. And so the program that we're, we're calling it is stages. So um, basically the rollout of that and, and just creating some public awareness that, that we have that. And, and there's different tiers, you know, once you get to um, 20,000 monthly listeners on Spotify, it's like, we can do these things for you. Once you get to 200,000 and we can do these things. And those are only, you know, they're not strict mile markers. Um, it's just more like, that's our quick shorthand way of saying like, are you around this level in your career? Um, because we also work with people who have no activity on Spotify, but kill it on Pandora and make like literally a million dollars a year from Pandora. So, you know, sorry, I'm, I'm rambling now, but no, that's good. I've I've never heard it. Yeah, it does. So you've, you've got this sort of behind the scenes program that has been running, but you're trying to figure out how to begin marketing that as a benefit to CD Baby developing artists is, hey, here's, 
here's something that's available to you once once your career develops to a certain point. Yeah, and it's sort of it's it's kind of a touchy thing to explain. Um, probably not to your audience, but like if we just sent an email to a million artists, we'd have to be careful about it because um, it truly is a benefit. But we also know that when we say, hey, we offer this stuff, but not to you yet, that that can seem sort of, you know, elitist and um, mm. or, or or what would you call it? That's, yeah, it's just some sort of caste system all, all of a sudden. When CD Baby's like founding ethos was every artist matters, every genre matters, there's nothing too niche. And, you know, like if if literally you only ever have three fans in your life, your music is just as important and valid you know, at least to those three people as, as someone who's selling millions and, you know, as someone who likes poetry and folk music, I'm like, totally, I am 100% behind that ethos. They're just such life-changing, beautiful music being made that doesn't have mass appeal. So given that that's how CD Baby started and why it started and the belief that no matter how niche you are and how small your fan base, you deserve to be treated with respect you deserve to have access to the tools and monetization and all this stuff. Like it is a little weird to say like, Oh, and then there's this one thing you can't quite have yet. Or, um, so, you know, all that to say, we're still trying to figure out how to make it, uh, sound convincingly aspirational because it is. Yeah. Yeah. That I, I can see that. And I can see how it would be a little bit delicate. So in the second part of the question was what's, what's next for you? Are you, I saw in your bio, you were talking about uh, how your shows are like, I believe, comets, you know, occasionally <laughs> going past, but life changing when you do, you know, so uh, when is when is the next comet passing by and, and what are you working on? Oh, actually, they're, they're getting less rare now. Um, I have, um, let's see, I'm, I'm playing Maine, the state of Maine is turning. Well, actually, it turned 200 last year, but since uh, the pandemic was in full force, they delayed the, uh, bicentennial parade. So there's a big, uh, 200 year celebration parade that I'm playing, which will be exciting. And then there's a kind of a a concert in the park series, um, happening in, in the city I live in that I'll be doing in late August. And then I'm actually playing a house show at a friend's, uh, just in his backyard, which I'm excited for. They're three very different, um, different kinds of shows. One is, um, a, a tiny crowd in a backyard playing, a short set of all my original stuff. I, I love that. And then the the uh, the parade one will be kind of random passersby who are, definitely aren't there for me. But so you know that might might do some more covers for that one. And mm-hmm. then the uh, and then the concert in the park will be kind of a, a mix of those two things. But so I'm excited for that. And then I'm putting out an album in September. Uh, I've been doing oh. um, a couple lead up singles so far. Uh, I think one more single next month and then um, lots of video stuff. I'm creating a uh, kind of a behind the scenes uh, experience uh, to capture leads, you know, and, and be able to do that. I don't know if you've talked about marketing funnels much on your podcast, but kind of build one of those marketing funnels. that starts with video introductions on, on Instagram and Facebook and leading down to getting the email, providing a cool, uh, yeah, behind the scenes thing with all this video and and all sorts of stuff, and then you know at the end of that, hopefully they walk home with some merch. Okay, fantastic. Well, um, give me a couple. Where's the best place for people to find information about your new upcoming release? And and obviously we know the cdbaby dot com website. Yeah, um, I guess for me, chrisrobley dot com. It's R O B L E Y, and then. Um, I think I'm probably uh, Instagram's probably my favorite social place to be right now. So, and that's just um, at Chris Robley as well. Okay. Well, I will make sure to include links to both. And, and uh, again, I really appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. This was fun. This episode was recorded before the CD Baby virtual DIY conference. So if you'd like to hear a concise summary of my most important takeaways from the three-day event, check out episode 82. As always, I'll have a lot of links for you over on the show notes page at producerlifepodcast.com, and this was episode 83. Also, in two weeks, we have the other host of the CD Baby DIY podcast, Kevin Bruner. So make sure you hit subscribe because Kevin offers some great ideas throughout that episode. Oh, last but not least, a big shout out to NeoThe115 over on iTunes, who says this podcast is informative. This is an excellent podcast. I love how it goes into depth on all kinds of topics about the music industry. 
Highly recommended. Thank you so much for taking the time to do that, Neo. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating and review wherever you're listening, because I'd love to feature your review in a future episode. Until next time, this is the House Ninja reminding you to be somebody's hero today. Thank you.